Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. We are going back to the Sugar Club on Thursday the 28th of September with a brilliant lineup of special guests and you. Come along, grab the tickets, eventbrite.ie. The link is at the bottom of this podcast. I also continue to need to ask you to help keep this podcast platform going. It's patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. That price of a fancy cup of coffee to you keeps the mics on and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. And I say it all the time, it's not a one-way street. You get access to our entire back catalogue now of nearly 1,300-odd podcasts. And you get them as quickly as I can turn them around completely plea-free. And that includes podcast this week with Professor Richard Murphy joined us from the UK to talk about how to implement wealth taxes that will actually work and not cause capital flight. Another great podcast with Richard. Always enjoy chatting to him. So if you want to hear that now, it's available right now on patreon.com forward slash tortoise Please, please, please click the link and join us. Let's keep this show on the road. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing, liking and recommending this to everyone else. We really appreciate it. I'm shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain, and as always, my pod brother is with me, Gareth Mulvena. Hello, Gareth. Hi, Sam. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, tonight, we're joined by Professor John Barry of Queen's University, Belfast, and a former Green Party councillor, as he says, a recovering politician. One of John's subject areas is he covers the class, loyalism, republicanism in, in Northern Ireland, and that's something, as you know, that me and Gareth are well involved in. So, how you doing, John? I'm doing fine on this Wednesday evening. It's uh, beautiful here in the kingdom of Hollywood. It's almost like living in a real country. <laughs> if only the weather was like this all the time, as your man would say. <laughs> hey, John. How are you doing, Gart? Long time no see. Absolutely. Good to see you again. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. It's lovely to see Queen's graduates doing, doing well. So congratulations on the pod and all your other accolades. I've been following your career over the last number of years as an independent scholar fair play to you oh thank you well it's something to do outside the day job it keeps me off the streets <laughs> it, do, it, it, it does that it keeps him keeps him occupied and keeps him out of trouble with the wife keeps me on the streets but off the streets metaphorically that's <laughs> just so people don't get the wrong idea i actually do go out and talk to people not in an ivory tower so yeah you're not you're not in an echo chamber if you excuse the pun there like yeah. um, <laughs> but yeah mate John, doing, doing a bit of research for this, I don't usually do research. I usually wing these things. Gareth's the academic, and I'm sort of just the, the, the looks of the, the sort of unit. Um, but I actually read through some of your papers today, and you sent me a couple of them through. And, and there, was, there was quite a few bits that they pulled through, but what I wanted to dig into first, you've you done, you, you done a bit of research with um, the UPRG and a few community groups. Um, and when they talk about how we... As identity goes, as loyalists, we get lost in our identity and what Britishness is to us. Um, and it's something that actually me and Gareth have talked about before, how we explore that and how we answer the question, what is a loyalist? So from an outsider's perspective and somebody who has studied this, what is a loyalist? Well, I think it, there is no singular definition. I mean, it's much more correct to talk about loyalisms. Um, and of course, there are many ways in which to understand this. And, and as you said, I am an outsider. I am I'm always aware um, of how sensitive one must be and, and contingent and provisional, although that may, be, may not be the right word to use in this context, um, <laughs> in terms of the, the definitions one uses. I, I would see loyalism as essentially a, a working class form of place-based unionism, uh, a very strong attachment to a sense of Britishness. Now, that sense of Britishness may have to do with uh, the army. Uh, people tend to forget that despite the population of Northern Ireland being only 3%, in some of the regiments of the British army, they can make up the 15 20%. And of course, if you think then that of that 3% I'm talking about, maybe just over half are from the Protestant Unionist loyalist background, it just shows you this enormous uh, connection 
between um, the loyalist community in particular, but also unionist, if you want to use unionism as a, a more middle-class expression of Britishness and the military. And that's certainly something that I uh, was not aware of until I particularly became a, um, a councillor. And the areas I represented were often loyalist areas. I, I live in Hollywood North Down, and before anybody starts slagging me off, yes, it's the haves and the have yachts on the one hand, but actually the, the biggest issue where I am uh, is class and the, and the class division between loyalists and unionists. Uh, and just to finish that, uh, certainly in engaging as a local councillor with the um, paramilitary flags used to go up in Hollywood and Bangor, uh, it wasn't uniquely the case, but whenever I spoke to some of those that were putting up the flags, it, they weren't getting at Republicans because there's no Republicans to speak of out here in, in North Down. They were really trying to get at the middle class um, who they feel are looking down on, on loyalists. So it was the class issue that really was driving it um, uh, where, where I was out here. So, again, I think loyalism is place-based senses of Britishness um, that often may be uh, different in, you know, the Shankill in, 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 in East Belfast, maybe different than, um, you know, places in, 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 in Derry, Londonderry. And certainly I, it's out of my work where I supervised somebody you should probably have on your show, Sophie Long, um, who was a one-time PUP candidate. She did a PhD with me. And certainly her research, particularly looking at the online um, expressions of, of loyalism, it was my first time to really see some empirical evidence of, of, of both the importance of single identity uh, spaces within which, you know, particularly loyalists can talk about politics and their identity, but also this place-based specificity that there really was um, sharp differences between the expressions of loyalism in particular localities uh, across Northern Ireland. I think that's really interesting, John, about the class differences within you know, unionism and loyalism. And for me, that was manifested in the rise of the DUP at the time of the confidence and supply, you know, arrangement. And the British media seemed to latch on to the DUP and have a renewed interest in stuff in the North. And there was a conflation almost of the DUP as representative of the entirety of unionism and loyalism. But you've hit on a really important point there because in an area like Hollywood or North Down, to me, it's always seemed that those acts of resistance from loyalists, from people in Kilcooley, it's more to do with reaction against the cultural cringe of kinds, where you have these people who, a lot of them might have come from working class backgrounds, done better, but have pulled up the ladder. Whereas in the Catholic nationalist community, whatever you want to call it, there's certainly more integration people used education to move on and then reinvested in the communities they came from so when people complain about being left behind okay you can say that they need to you know, motivate themselves and do better and this that and the other but there is a cultural cringe there that they're reacting against and it's something i'd like to hear more about if you can elaborate on that yes no i mean i think you're absolutely right i mean um it was very prevalent for me when I was researching the 2012-13 flag protest. And it wasn't just Republicans or often middle-class liberals that were kind of dripping in class contempt to um, for those who were engaged in the flag protest. Got a flag, for example, that really um, annoyed me to see um, the slagging off of people because of their grammar, um, their social media posts being picked through because of bad spelling uh, and so on, as a way of completely deflecting from the issues that um, people were protesting about. And let's recall, that was the, the North's probably largest, largely non-violent um, protest that we've seen here in, in many years. For the most part, the white picket uh, organised um, protests were non-violent. Um, and people tend to forget that. I mean, as a staunch unionist myself, a uh, trade unionist, that is, he adds for effect. I, I engage in action that disrupts people's lives in terms of strike in the same way that the flag protesters did. And they had every democratic right to express their, their views in, in that way. Um, but for me, though, when I seen sometimes left wing, um, critics, or left-wing, you know, um, people in, in, in political parties, but also middle-class unionists, you know, um, drawing out that class disdain 
against the loyalist uh, working class, you can really begin to see that unionism, if we use that now as a, a way of including now loyalism, really does come across as a, a, a cross-class alliance that is often fragile. It's never um, complete and it's always contestable. You know, there are occasions when you see the unionist family coming together in this cross-class alliance you know, signal moments in the North's history in 1985 against the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Uh, it may be that we see elements of that, although probably not in terms of the um, the lack, if you like, of mobilisation of people perhaps around the, the Windsor framework and post-Brexit arrangements. But maybe on occasions like uh, around the 12th, where you begin to see the middle-class unionists and working-class loyalists and the, the flute bands having this um, temporary expression of cross-class alliance, but how fragile that is, as I've seen, when working-class loyalists feel that they've been left behind, particularly where I was a councillor here for, for seven years, I was absolutely amazed and actually quite sad for the loyalist community that they were being given a couple of thousand pounds for a bony every year to express their culture. And when I was engaging with these community groups, I was saying, you should be asking for an awful lot more. Where's the educational element to this to you know recover the bonfire tradition that was usually started on the beaches that's where it began as these were beacons so the ships could come in or what about exploring uh, the history of, of radical britishness the levelers the diggers the chartists and so on i mean there's a whole sense of british identity uh, which i could align with as somebody on on the left not necessarily the imperialism and empire, but that, um, you know, radical kind of social democratic populist tradition within Englishness in particular, if not Britishness as a whole. You know, I was making these arguments in terms of that's what these community groups representing loyalist community should be arguing for, as well as the bony and the bouncy castles for the kids and the celebration in, in that way. But I have to say, it may have been my accent, it may have been that I had Green Party in my title. I was politely listened to, but I didn't get a sense that people were really going to take up this more expansive um, demand that I was suggesting they would engage in with the local council to ask for more money around education, you know, to engage in citizenship and leadership training and so on, which is a real pity because, you know, I've just come back from the lyric last night having watched uh, The Man Who Swallowed the Dictionary, you know, the, the play about um, Davy Irvine by Bino Niblock, and you just really begin to see the, the, the importance of that organic working-class leadership. Um, doesn't have to be, you have to go to university and so on, but it's a, it encourage education and knowledge about your past, and not just one that's based on a very, in my view, sanitised version of, of, of Britishness in Ireland. That's just about the psalm, and it's about, you know, the First World War, the Second World War, and then 1690, and maybe a little bit about the United Irish Men, and that's it. So it's a much more complex and rich tradition than that. But that's where I find it difficult, as somebody from outside that community, um, to be making those demands strongly. I, I will suggest them as an interested outsider. Well, you don't want to consider this, but I, I found it, it can be quite difficult to um, enter into those conversations, especially because I'm not a member of, of, of the community. Yeah, I think what you're saying is right there. So for so long, our community has just taken the crumbs instead of asking for the cake. And I think that's something that we need to challenge ourselves to do a bit more of as a community and as a as a, an identity is to, to ask for more and to expect more. I mean, we, we don't expect a lot. We've had people on our pod saying we don't expect a lot from our politicians and we don't. And we, we expect the bare minimum, you know, come out and say something when we need you to say something and go away again. What we actually need them is there in the community on a daily basis. Delivering what we ask for and what we need, um, as opposed to giving us the odd scrap and the odd sort of headline. And you're talking about the flag protest, and I remember, I remember clearly the flag protest, and I remember you mentioned it in your paper about how the city council started this um, Belfast's Open campaign to generate business because it was in the run up to Christmas, and they were frightened uh, of this money going elsewhere, not being spent in their shops. When people were out protesting because it meant more than what money did and what consumerism did, it was about identity and it was about how they, you mentioned about how they felt their identity was being eroded. And it's not just about the flag coming down. It was a sense of everything that they thought they believed in and what they had sort of sacred in their heart was starting to be taken away and they were unsure of where they were going. So you've talked to people, 
do you think that there is a sense within loyalism that that they want to develop? Do you, do you feel that's the case? For for some, and certainly for the younger generation, I've been privileged uh, at Queen's to have come across some really uh, important, often young female loyalist voices, like Emma Shaw will have done a master's um, degree with me. I already mentioned there um, Sophie Long. And I have supervised dissertations that have looked at loyalism and particularly the role of loyalist women in protest. Just one recently um, ha- has been completed. And I think that it is a generational issue. So I think things like her loyal voice and so on have been wonderful in terms of, you know, um, both feminism not be seen, not not to be seen as some sort of shinner Republican Trojan horse in the same way that I was always amazed on council how um, unionist politicians, they said to me to my face that, you know, when I was arguing with them, I said, listen, why are you using human rights arguments to defend orange parades? And they just looked at me as if I got two heads or three heads. And one of them said to me, John, you got to understand, uh, human rights is a shinner language, like equality. And I was absolutely flabbergasted. I said, what in the name of James are you talking about? Human rights can be used by anybody to promote their particular claim on resources, on uh, the, the use of public space or, or whatever. But having made that argument, because I'm not one to shy away when I see a ridiculous response being given, as, as, as that one was, but it didn't make any difference. And that's where you see, I think, the lack of leadership within loyalism. I mean, I know it's a truism to say, just because I mentioned it already, there's a kind of a, a Davy Irvine-shaped hole. I think loyalism would be in a much better state if, 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 if he hadn't have passed away. And I'm looking around, where are the younger loyalist voices and what I'm going to say now might be controversial because he's a bit like Marmite, but I, I do think Jamie Bryson is an incredibly articulate and eloquent uh, voice. I don't agree a lot with what he has to say, but he has the potentials there uh, in terms of being able to articulate in a confident manner what I think many uh, working-class loyalists actually feel. But too often loyalists are, are, are trading and unionists more generally on the idea of just saying no is enough like just take the debate about you know constitution futures reunification where is the the loyalist think tanks or the unionist think tanks that are pumping out arguments for the union where is the big uh, meetings uh, to be had to make the case for the union in the same way that Ireland's future and whatever the Shinner version of it is, uh, you know, they've been very prominent and so on. And that's where I, I, I see a lack of, of leadership uh, within loyalism. And it does then feed into that narrative, part of which I accept, uh, part of which I, I, I don't, is that kind of narrative of, of decline uh, that narrative that, well, history is against loyalism, there's a kind of an inevitability about a United Ireland, we can't trust the British government, you know, they'll throw us under a bus, as what happened with the DUP. And so you can see how uh, loyalism uh, and then unionism more, more generally could be seen from the outside as a tradition under under threat, under siege, and lacking the confidence to be imaginative. It's almost lapsing into older tropes and strategies, which may have worked in the past, but they certainly aren't going to work in the future. And the reality is, just to conclude, I mean, this is kind of an anthropological statement, that any tradition without the capacity to change and to develop is a, is a dead tradition. And I suppose I'm, I'm looking, where are the innovations within uh, loyalism and unionism, particularly for me, uh, and it's something that... I am interested in both intellectually, but also to see it practically. I think the sense of Britishness that you will find in loyalism and unionism cannot be the sense of Britishness you get in England. It has to be a sense of Britishness in Ireland. But what does that look like? You know, what, what, how, how does the Irish dimension influence that sense of Britishness? Because I always remember, you know, somebody who probably taught Gareth um, back at Queen's and former colleague of mine who's now retired, uh, Adrian Gelke, I remember he, he and I had a great conversation many years ago where he was telling me that prior to 68 when things kicked off, there was, I forget the figure he quoted at me, but there was quite a high proportion of loyalists and unionists who are happy to have some element of their identity be described as Irish. But of course, when the troubles kicks off, as Adrian put it, not only were people robbed of their lives, but they were also robbed of their sense of Irishness. 
And it does seem to me that is there something in there, both as a challenge and an opportunity for loyalism, to, to reclaim that, those elements of Irishness, which doesn't diminish there's still strong senses of Britishness in the way like that. And again, I know it's probably been done to death, but I think it's a good example of what Linda Irvine is doing in tourists in East Belfast of recovering the Irish language that is equally uh, open to the Protestant Unionist loyalist community as it is to anybody else. So it's that issue of what does Britishness in Ireland mean in the 21st century as a way in which loyalism can reimagine its place within the Union, within Ireland, to be able to go toe-to-toe with, with the Shinners and Republicans who are making the case post-Brexit for a united Ireland. There's an interesting point there, John, and Adrian was absolutely correct. I think he's referring to the work that was done by John White, the political scientist, where there was a big survey done pre-Troubles and in and, and the early years of the Troubles about this sense of Britishness and, and Irishness and how comfortable people were and there was an amorphous nature to what was going on in the Protestant Unionist community where there was more of a sort of ability to articulate that Irishness. And I know, you know, Billy Mitchell, when I talked to him years ago, talked about that period when he before he got involved with Paisley, where he talked about being comfortable with his Irishness. He saw no contradiction in being uh, Irish and British. But the one thing that he said that always struck with me from his perspective was I had no problem with Irish culture, but I had a problem with the provisionalization of it. So from his perspective, he's probably talking from that constituency that Irish culture per se is not contradictory to the Protestant working class experience, but the provisionalization of it is anathema to what happened afterwards in the 1970s and beyond. Do you, do you have any feelings about what, what, what way that played out? No, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the politicization or weaponization of whether it's a language, a culture, um, even mythic um, stories and so on um, are always then going to be caused, particularly in the context of deep social division and, and violence, uh, where it's reasonable just to uh, completely recoil from anything to do with, with Irishness. But, but it seems to me that that then bleeds over into, as I mentioned earlier, the seeding of the language and discourse of rights, the seeding and the handing over of the language of equality and so on. That also, I just found, why, why is this happening? It's almost like that that same logic of rejecting the politicization of Irishness, then suddenly, well, the Shinners have politicised equality, no doubt about it, as other people have, and it's their right to do so. They politicise human rights. Well, so what? Why should that then mean for you? That's it. Where they got there first, we're not going to use it. And so that's something obviously that needs to be asked of loyalist leaders or unionist leaders. Why don't we see more human rights arguments? Uh, why don't we see more equality-based arguments for making the case for orange walks, parades, or other expressions of um, orange unionist British identity? But I do think that in, in the context of um, the Troubles, you can absolutely see how the um, anything to do with Ireland Irishness was, you know, completely outside the realms of of possibility. But it do, but it does raise that that issue, which I've always believed in one of my better turns of phrase is that what we really need to do is trouble the troubles. Is that you know what's good about this conversation is that it's much more complex than an us and them or a simple binary opposition that our uh, relationships within this society here, across the island and between these two islands, are always much more complex. I mean, this really came out for me when, uh, as a councillor in 2016, 100 years after the Psalm, I was giving uh, a PowerPoint presentation to various loyalist groups that would have me. And essentially, I was giving a Marxist interpretation of the First World War. And I wasn't, you know, criticising the heroism of the men who died in the in the trenches. But the question I was asking was, what did they die for? You know, for me, uh, uh, you know, more or less as a Marxist, a, a war is a gun with a working class man or woman at either end. I said, what did a young Belfast kid have against a young working class Berliner? And to try and open up that conversation that this was a war of empire and that when those men came back after that war, they, they didn't get um, homes fit for heroes, you know, they were used as so many working class and peasants in history in the wars of the rich. 
they were simply abandoned and so on. And to begin to ask that, you know, in other words, the utilization of the psalm in particular and the heroism of the men, the kind of the birthright of Ulster, I still think holds a, 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 an inordinate place within loyalist British unionist identity here. But I wanted to complicate that. Now, I have to say, I went down as well as a fart in a spacesuit for even raising that because it just was, it, it was just maybe um, one step um, too far. But it does seem to me that that idea of seeing that there's a much more complicated relationship, including just to finish on that issue with the First World War, like, I was amazed, but then I, I, I said, why should I be amazed that when I was giving this talk to these very well-educated, working-class, loyalist men, they'd been to Mazine, they'd gone to do the uh, the tour often in, uh, in Flanders and so on, but some of them were still surprised when I said that actually more men from what's now the South served in the British Army in the 10th and the 11th Division than in the 36th Ulster Division. Um, and that was news to them. And I said, you know, that needs to be, t that, that to me is just an empirical fact. Now, they were fighting for different reasons. You know, those men from what's now the South went off because John Redmond said, fight for Britain and we'll get home rule. And of course, that was not what the, the men in the trenches fighting for the, 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 the 36th were. But it's even the fact that that uh, um, omission historically, uh, and I, I just love introducing these notions of how it's much more complex than people make out, including in my own personal biography. I mean, my grandfather uh, fought in the British Army in the Second World War, fought in North Africa, was injured, uh, never spoke about it. But, and we as a family, working class Dublin family, we can never speak about it because it's a great shame. Because my family was partly quite Republican because my mother's from, from Belfast. We had kind of political links to uh, Sinn Féin and, and the IRA. And in a working class area in Dublin, you do not say your granddad fought in the British Army and so on. And yet my story, I don't think, is, is any different than thousands and thousands of other people from what's now um, the Republic. And I just wish there was more of these conversations showing how, you know, our relationships within these islands, within this place in the north, Northern Ireland, Ulster, the week six, the occupied six, Jesus, can we not even figure out uh, a common name to call this place, are much more complicated than we often uh, assume because it's so easy just to have binary oppositions. It, it, I often think it just takes too much brain space and, and too much energy to understand the complexity of our past. It's so much easier to say demons, uzzons, bada bing, bada boom, as Tony Soprano would say, and the jobs are good. Well, can I just make one observation based on what you're saying, John, before Sam comes in? And I do this all the time to him, so I apologize, Sam. But it's, you know, I'm getting older and I need it while it's still fresh in my head. But you talk about the guys coming back from the First World War and, you know, be, there was basically nothing for them. It was a war of empires. And the thing that struck me when you were saying that, and I'd never really, it's obvious, but I'd never really thought it, about it in this context. When you think about somebody like Gusty Spence, he served in Cyprus. He came back from Cyprus and then, to all intents and purposes, he was used again by middle-class unionist politicians for their agenda against O'Neill. So there's that that use of the Protestant working class, working class loyalist, repeats itself over and over. And the other thing I'd, I'd point out, maybe, you talk about, um, you know, Sinn Féin republicanism taking ownership of the language of, of rights and equality and human rights, which I think is you know, bonkers that anyone should, you know, that f people should feel that language is being claimed by anyone. It's ridiculous that people think, you know, Sinn Féin or Sinn about human rights, we should stay away from that. Human rights are for everybody as a fundamental. And it always reminds me, and I've talked about this on Shrapnel before, there's the mural in the Midshankle that talks about 30 years of indiscriminate slaughter by the IRA. It says, no inquiries, no truth, no justice. But they're the people who have to look for those inquiries, that truth, that justice. And it reminds me when you say about trying to push the envelope slightly when you go into these um, community groups and give these talks. You're not you're not trying to recalibrate their thinking, but you're trying to get them to think along a different line and be more critical, be more self-reflective and, and help them along the way in terms of reinventing the, the, the landscape. So if people are complaining about there being no inquiries, no truth and no justice... Go and ask for it. Do it yourself. And Bino made this point um, around the time of the Lanark Way um, trouble, 
where he said, you know, he meets young guys in East Belfast who say, oh, you know, the media just think we're a piece of shit. They think we're good for nothing. And as Beano said, well, when, when does it come to the stage where you want to prove them wrong? Do something. Be proactive. And the number of times myself and Sam and other people have seen the seedlings of this. And I, I, you mentioned her loyal voice. I was involved in her loyal voice. And it, it was given a home to those discussions around feminism, uh, bodily autonomy, reproductive rights, all the things that exist within the loyalist working class, which are supported within the loyalist working class. But once people raise their head above the parapet, there's another group that come in and say, you're betraying the cause, you're letting us down. You know, loyalist women don't think like that. Well, the loyalist women who disagree might not think like that, but the loyalist women who came forward and said, we are feminists, we believe in the right to choose, they're still loyalists. And we'll have to have room for all these different voices, but, I mean, it's always strangled at birth, and it's a horrible thing to witness as an outsider who's empathetic to that community. Yeah, I mean, I just want to add there the the points that John that John made there about the First World War. I mean, there's always a question I ask people, well, what country lost the most soldiers in the First World War? What one country? And they always answer wrong because it's India. And again, India were pr- promised that their freedom would be given from the empire should they partake in this war and sent many thousands of men to die. And then if you go back then to what we're talking about, about the appropriation of Irish and people claiming it, you look at the Red Hand Commando flag. I mean, Lander Gabu, you know I mean, it's, it's Irish. Yeah. And you look at the YCV flag, there's a shamrock on there. I mean, the... Loyalism has embraced Irishness before and then let it go and not gone and taken it back. And I think that's where we need to be. We need to be in a position where, as Doug Beatty says, he's an Irishman. We need to be confident enough to say we are Irishmen, but we, we have a British identity to go with that. You know, we, we want to be part of the UK. We're unionists in that, in that thinking. Um, and you were talking about people there like Sophie Long and her loyal voice and Emma Shaw. How many of these people actually get a proper voice when they, when they leave academia? That, that is my issue because these are females and we tend to stamp yeah. that out for some reason instead of encouraging yeah. that because that's where that's where our power is. We should be giving yeah. those female voices a bigger platform. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. And you you can't help but notice, you know, whether it's Julianne Cor Johnson, um, Sophie, I don't know what the situation is with Emma, but there is a, a strongly toxic masculinity and patriarchy uh, within loyalist politics. I'm not saying it's absent from republicanism a- at all, but I definitely think there's a particular issue with the kind of hangover of that kind of military warrior mentality um, within loyalism, which, again, you know, it is an interesting discussion about the the demilitarization of murals across uh, the north here. It's certainly more pronounced in republican areas and, and we still see, it is happening, don't get me wrong, in loyalist areas, but I don't see it happening uh, at the same pace. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what that, what's that about? Is it that it just has to go at a slower pace? That has to be negotiated with local community? Or is it still that this older kind of paramilitary understanding of, of loyalism um, still has a, you know, and we know it, you know, it still has a, a stranglehold, coercive control over, over communities. And that therefore, when we get strong female voices, um, they're not often welcomed. They're welcomed when they can be used for particular purposes, maybe in terms of the flag protest and that women were quite prominent. And I remember a very prominent um, um, display that was in East Belfast where um, a bunch of women and, 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 uh, and, and girls, they circled a, a bony to protect it from being taken away. And it was a quite a, an evocative you know, female vulnerability, but defiance being used in protection of of their culture. So we do get examples of that, but you're right. I mean, where are the strong female voices within loyalist um, and unionist politics? They're not really really there. But one thing I want to go back in terms of what Garrett was saying in terms of, you know, uh, using rights and, and the law and so on to get inquest. I mean, I've done a lot of work over the years with Raymond McCord, in terms of the work that he's done, obviously from a, a you know a loyalist background himself, a son murdered by the UVF, but the way in which he and, and others that he's brought from the loyalist community and he's done cross community work of using, um, you know the law, and he led that campaign two years ago where uh, it was unique, whereby every party on the island of Ireland signed up against the British government's amnesty bill. 
You know, the British government has done something that nobody's ever done in the totality of Irish history. It's brought everybody together, even though I think it's going to go through because they have the numbers. And there's an example. Well, why can't loyalism do more of that to be demanding um, inquest and using the law um, to try and get um, justice for uh, their, their loved ones and, and so on? But there is that issue, I think, of uh, to go back to something I said earlier, it, this re- this kind of challenge I'm laying down for loyalism in the 21st century of what does Britishness mean in Ireland now? I think it has to do with now detoxifying itself of this masculinity, detoxifying itself of, you know, that, that uh, the violence, which, again, we have different views. Was it necessary? Can we condone it? I'm not getting into that now, but the reality is it's still there. And I do think there is, that again, that capacity for what are the resources from within loyalism to effectively reinvent itself. And, and you know, that's why I think it's wonderful to see plays like Beano's coming out to, you know, show that uh, working class, um, A, the, the, the play itself, the very fact that's come from, you know, an organic intellectual, a playwright, but also about the figure that's the uh, subject of the play, Davy Irvine. And I encourage anybody who's listening definitely to go and see it. It's absolutely um, wonderful. And it, it's we need more of those cultural expressions. I mean, but the only my only problem is with the play. I want to see it going into East Belfast and into community centres, into the Welders Club. I think it, it can't just stay in in the lyric because that's t- still too a uh, middle-class home for this. And I do hope that that's something like that, because I think that will give a boost to the loyalist community to say, look what they produce in this wonderfully eloquent, erudite, really astute individual that, as I said, uh, you know, already, that is greatly missed, I think, today in, in Northern Irish politics. Well, it's interesting you say that, John, because, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but eight years ago, um, when I was involved with one of the research groups in Queens. We did get some funding to put scenes from the play on in Skianos. And, you know, there was a wee bit of a hoo-ha in the group from some people saying, you know, this is a disproportionate use of funds for uh, an event in a, in a loyalist area. But the two important things for me there were it was concentrating on the labour tradition in East Belfast and trying to reclaim that and, and let the community see that they have that history. And also... And maybe people weren't over these granular details, but it was at a time when the UVF were recruiting hand over fist in East Belfast. And we were trying to go in and say, look, here's David Irvine. Here's somebody here. And here's Bino, who's from East Belfast, producing this amazing work of art. Here's the other alternative. That's in the past. You can give expression to it and we can we can look to the future and, and sort of move in a different way. But. I agree, and and I know it is going into different working class areas, and I think that's important. But I think it's also good that the middle class audience in the lyric is being exposed to the warts and all story from within loyalism, because I think that's we talked about it earlier, where the cultural cringe lies. Yeah, yeah, and of course the reality is that you know people tend to view sectarianism as a working class phenomenon. It certainly isn't. You know, it is right across society and, you know, many of us would probably have experienced very eloquent middle class people coming out with the most awful sectarian stuff. I mean, including me in some of the circles I move in, kind of left wing socialist circles. And I was always amazed that um, the kind of either the the absence of a, of a recognition of the working class loyalist community uh, as a form of agency. I mean, if you're a socialist, class is the basis of your analysis, not you know, loyalist or Republican, no, class, and you try and unite and so on. But so many times I found I was the one with my thick Dublin, taggy, Fenian accent saying, excuse me, why aren't we looking at East Belfast or why aren't we engaging with uh, loyalist communities or even churches? And I speak now as a completely, not even lapsed, but completely collapsed Catholic, but I do have, you know, respect for those of, of faith. And I was always looked at with, you know, two heads. Why do we want to go in there? And I think for many people, even on the left today, they they have the, the, the attitude, which I shamefully had before I came to live here in 2000, I mean, my view of the loyalist working class was they're knuckle-dragging scumbags, they're dupes of the British state, they haven't a thought in their head. And I really believe those rumours, particularly uh, apropos of the 
you know, the play last night and, and part of the play is about Davy Irvine's time in Long Cash and with Gutsy Spence and, and Billy Hutchinson and so on. And I believed that when they raised uh, the maze, as it were, that the, the, the libraries of Republicans, this was the myth story that I believed in for many years, was it was full of books about feminism and ecology and political strategy and Marxism. And when it came to the loyalist section of the library, porno mags and bodybuilder magazines. And that fitted that kind of narrative of, of no political ideology, no political thought within loyalism, which is completely sectarian and false. In fact, you know, many loyalist prisoners, they, some of them learned Irish. And in fact, there's a funny scene in the play about Davy Irvine using his knowledge of Irish to mess up the Provies uh, on, on drill parade across the, uh, the fence. But they got degrees and so on. But yet... Many of the circles that I was moving in, I'd hope to think it's different now. This is going back now 20 years ago. There was still this sense, even amongst progressive left people here in Northern Ireland, that the working class loyalists were, were, were a lost cause. What's the point in, in going to them? They were, they, they're just dupes. And that feeds into or connects guard to what you were saying about the use and abuse of the loyalist working class throughout history. Like a Praetorian guard. Uh, as Sean Brennan, who's another PhD student of mine in his thesis, put it, you know, that is eaten up and spat out by middle class unionism and told to go back in their box whenever, you know, uh, it, it suits them. In, in that case, you mentioned there, Gutsy Spence being, in a way, abused twice, once by the British Army and then by the official unionist party in, in the 1960s. I, I've, I, yeah, I, I find that totally fascinating when you talk about the sort of it's not even unconscious sectarianism, it's conscious, uh, particularly on the left. And, uh, you know, it's really sad to see because the left should be allies of the working class, no matter what what the creed is. Um, and I know a good friend of mine, Jason Brannigan, has encountered this because he's obviously, well, he's an anarchist, but he's from um, working class loyalist background. And he finds it very difficult, some of the conversations he has to hear, to the point where... You know, he, I remember he put a thing up on Facebook a number of years ago saying, oh, so I'm the token prod when, when everything's okay, but when, you know, the gloves are off, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm not, I'm not good enough, basically. And it, it's, I, I've heard that and it, it's, it sits very uneasily with me, this sort of idea that, you know, working class loyalism is, re, you know, there's nothing we can do for them. We just better cut them off. And, but ultimately, where are they going to go? I mean, what, and that's, that, draws me into the sort of debate around the New Ireland and the enterprises that, you know, Sinn Féin and the SDLP have been behind, which are, you know, positive. But the one thing for me, as somebody who does want to see a New Ireland, the, the older I get, um, as, and as somebody who's researched loyalism, I don't see any of the loyalist voices. I don't see anyone being invited to talk at these events. I see a lot of middle class or um, sort of middle class type unionists or converted unionists whatever way you want to put it being invited to these events and telling people what they want to hear but i don't see loyalists being platformed and given the uncomfortable truth of look if if we do have a border poll tomorrow and there is a vote in favor of it which would be democratic and and fine there's going to be a massive amount of people who won't won't accept it and it's just reversing history on its head because we're going to be with a situation that we had in the 1960s and nobody wants that over again we want to show some generosity to the minority i uh, uh, you've hit the yeah. nail on the head there in terms of sorry just to bump in uh sam i'm probably older than both of you so my brain cells i need to activate them when they they fire up but i think another term apart from troubling the troubles that we may coin for this podcast one that uh, my good friend richard o'leary gave me many years ago he was a former sociology lecturer at, at queen's and he talked about the lack of generous majorities here in the history of the north of northern ireland and this was particularly the case, I think, around the flag protest. So don't get me wrong. The decision to remove the flag flying three, six, five days a year was a democratic decision. And as I said to loyalists and unionists, and I was partly involved behind the scenes with some of the flag protests, which I can talk about if you want um, later. I said, you know what the lesson of this is, boys and girls? 
fill council next time with unionists to reverse that decision democratically, as well as engaging in the in the non-violent protests that you are with the with the flag protests. But the the lack of the generosity amongst nationalists and and the alliance, for example, that between the designated days and I forget what designated days is eighteen or twenty a year around royal birthdays and so on. But between say twenty days and three six five, well, that's a big number. You know, is there not, was there not some way that Republicans and Nationalists could have said, we don't want the flag flying over the city, which is now not a majority British city, given the demographics and so on, but we, we'll fly it now, I don't know, 60, 70 days a year, not 365. And that's where I think the, the lack of generosity and indeed imagination, even within Republicans, uh, could also be called to, to, you know, to account. And I do think, I mean, it's easy to say, you know, let's all be more generous uh, and so on. But there's a danger that a, a once oppressed group, now whether that's real or, or perception, but when they become the top dog, the danger is that they start meeting out the, um, the, the, the injustice that they've experienced and so on. And I'm not saying that that fully explains what's happening here in, in the North. I think it's, you know, it's much more complex than that. But I do wish there was a lot more sensitivity shown. Um, particularly maybe it's because it's me because I've, I've, I've lived and I've been a counselor for, you know, yeah, middle class areas here where I live in, in, in North Down, but also having engaged with loyalist, um, communities, both as a counselor, as an academic for many years. You begin to see that there has to be a much more sensitive, um, engagement to, you know, encourage people even to enter that debate. Because of course, Gareth, even if we were to put on a shrapnel podcast about the United Ireland, Will loyalists turn up? Because there's always a sense where even to enter the debate, you've lost. You're, you know, you're a traitor. Yeah. And I think that's a real mistake. Loyalists and unionists should not fear entering into the debate and making the case for the union. Or even more, which I think would probably even, you know, be more interesting, is that, okay, if there was a reunified, a reimagined Ireland, what would that look like? You know, what's the proportion of the new broadcaster going to be given over to Ulster Scots or how is orange culture going to be represented in this new Ireland and challenge, for example, just to finish the, the, the poll that came out last year in the Irish times where, you know, again, it was just for the 26 counties where it showed uh, a kind of a dogmatic sense within the Irish people down South. They weren't going to change the flag and they weren't going to change the anthem even in a reunified Ireland. Now, how is that the basis then of including um, a large minority of this reunified Ireland? Where Where's their place in the flag or or the anthem? But there's a whole other range of issues that need to be discussed around this, of course. And maybe you, you probably have podcasts on this in the past. Well, there's, there's one thing I'd say there. and uh, Sorry, Sam, this is the last time we'll jump in, but I think I it's an important I am leaving. I've had enough. Go on, bye. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's basically... What 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 you're saying about the flag protests there, Eddie Eddie Kenner, who's obviously former uh, UVF prisoner, he was involved with the PUP around the time of the agreement. He made an excellent point where he said, around that time of the flag protest, when the vote came through, the DUP or whoever it was, um, the Ulster Unionists should have stood up and said, we. Uh, uh, thank Sinn Féin for voting to fly the Union flag above City Hall and we hope that they'll um, implement this in nationalist-dominated councils across Northern Ireland. But that's the blue sky thinking that needs to be implemented. And that, again, it's no surprise that that came from somebody of that vintage, Davy Irvine, Billy Hutchinson, Eddie Kenner, Billy Mitchell. There is a, there's a unique culture there that we're really, really missing now in the political sphere. Yeah, I mean, I'd back that one up with the time that they, they went into the, the filia and the guy said, we want our six counties back. And Eddie replied with, well, we want our 26 counties back. You know, it's <laughs> you've got to challenge each and every single one of these things. You know, now, I have been down to, to Dublin with the, the tortoise shack and I have sat on a stage in Ballymun and the Sugar Club um, and sort of not debated outright the United Ireland, but challenged it. And the question I ask is, what are we challenging? Because there's no plan yet from the Irish government or anybody else about what this looks like. So I'm not going to sit there and argue over hypotheticals. Show me what your plan is. Come and tell me this is what a United Ireland looks like. And then I'll argue with you with it. Because at the minute, there's nothing to challenge other than daydreams and fairy tales. And and going back on what you said about the, the sort of the fancy left when it comes to loyalism. I mean, Jackie Pollock was the regional... Um, he was the regional secretary of the Unite Union 
Jackie's from the Shankle. Jackie grew up in a loyalist working class area, and that's where he learned his politics from. And I'm the same. I was unionized as soon as I went through the front doors of shorts. We were taught that way. We were unionized and we are left. And that's where I think you were saying earlier on about loyalism is the working class. It is left leaning working class as far as I'm concerned, because as much as they sometimes think they're right wing, when they look at their community politics, it is left wing. It is, we are left. We are socialists in, in, in the way we think. Um, we just need to be able to articulate that better. And I think what, what you're saying, John, is right. And I, I'll use that as a challenge to those in my community as well. Come forward. Start using your voice because you do have one. Can't, I mean, are you going to stand up against university academics and have your grammar checked and say it's perfect? No. But still what? You still have a point to say. Come along. And the more we speak, the more confident we'll get in speaking about it. And we can then go to places and discuss this. So if Ireland first are listening... If they want me on stage, they can have me on stage, but they're not going to like what I have to say. So it, it's not going to work out good for them or me, so I don't think they're going to ask. But yeah, it's it's, it's, it's there, John. I, I think we need to be confident. That's it. We need to be more confident. Aye, but, aye, but more so, importantly, but, I mean, this is the, the essence of, 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 a, of democracy as non-violent disagreement. And I think that's what progress mm -hmm. means in a divided um, post-conflict society, is that we're moving from antagonism, where you view the other as an enemy, that's a prelude then to violence, and we've seen that, where you're shifting from that antagonistic relationship into agonism, which simply means it's like being on a football pitch where there are opponents, where you can kick nine bells out of each other on, on the rules of the game, but after that, then you can be fellow citizens or at least, you know, uh, sharing this space as well. So I, I think we need more of this vibrant democratic debate where we can. I mean, Sandy as Garrett and I would know as academics going through the peer review process to get journal articles published. That's a fairly uh, horrible experience often where your precious ideas are ripped apart by three or four anonymous colleagues. But that type of live stress testing of what you were saying there Sam what is the plan what's the health service going to look like where are the jobs I mean I'm really disappointed and I've written a paper around this with one of my PhD students but A there's no United Ireland on a dead planet there's no discussion of the ecological and climate challenge which is probably the majority of my academic work how will United Ireland ensure that uh, we're going to make a contribution to you know the terrible calamities of the climate and ecological disaster but even more than that the dominant economic underpinning of United Ireland arguments are thoroughly neoliberal and capitalistic. You know, they're basically saying, oh, we'll save the subvention of the subsidy, the Barnett formula, and we're going to have lower corporation tax. And it's, it, 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 I have echoing in my mind here that, that quote from James Connolly, where he quite prophetically said, what's the point in raising the green flag over City Hall if you don't change the structure of the economy? And I think we are now moving in that debate about reunified Ireland that we're going to have to see the evidence base. We're going to have to see, you know, what's the, the cost of this? What's the, the energy system, the new agricultural system? How, what's the education system going to be? And I think we will get that because as, as both of you will well know, and I'm sure you've discussed this on your pod before, is that I never thought we would have a debate about United Ireland in my lifetime in the way we are now. And it's Brexit that has just accelerated this debate. And I do think loyalists cannot, and units cannot just say no and not get involved in it because that train is now already left uh, in the sense of the debate and so on, whether the direction of travel is. But it is about now saying, OK, let's have this debate and, and try and tease this out and, and look at the uh, what's on the table. Because you're right, it's very hard to debate uh, a hypothetical unless you want to counter it with another hypothetical. But but I do think we will see more empirical evidence and arguments being made that are based on facts and so on that can then be stress-tested, as I say, and, and peer-reviewed. So I, I look forward to that agonistic, democratic, non-violent disagreement that we've already seen, and I hope we see more of this in the future. What I fear is that that can also then bleed into the other stuff, which, of course, is always a possibility where, you know, we get, um, you know, people who may want to take their arguments beyond simply nonviolent disagreement into the other realm, which we don't want. Yeah, and what you were saying earlier on about, uh, Gareth mentioned about the large minority of, of loyalists being here and being forced into something they don't want to be forced into. I mean, Davy Irvine himself said, we are the British presence in Northern Ireland. 
So you can have the army and the flags, everything else out of the country, but there is still a British presence here. And they, they don't seem to be able to comfortably accept that. I mean, we get called deluded Irishmen or, we, or else we get called planters and told to go back to Britain. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're here and we're not leaving. Yeah. So they're, go, they're going to have to come to some terms with us being here. And how they do that will sort of dictate how this direction goes, to be honest. Yeah, well, and, and that to me is an open question that I've thought about. I've not had a chance to do any work on it, but it's not for me in a way. It's that is there a what would Britishness look like in a reconfigured Ireland? And I think that's a better language to use than a united Ireland and so on. You know, what would be the, the links that could still be made? With, with with Great Britain, and what I think is going to have to happen is a is a realignment of relationships across these islands because I see, you know, are we at the beginning of the end of the United Kingdom as a unitary state with Scotland potentially going independent? Obviously, we got the debate around reconfiguring relations on this island, but can we be a more imaginative and and actually expand the vision out to include relationships between these islands? Uh, in a way, what what would that look like in uh, a new dispensation across this island? But it's that issue. What what's the minimum that would be required? I, is it even possible to be British where you where you're not in the United Kingdom, for example? Uh, is it that the the cultural as opposed to the political dimension of Britishness? You know, we when you can't detach them one from the other. That as soon as you lose, you move from the United Kingdom. That's it. You're no longer British, or um, a, a central part of what it means to be British is is gone. And I think you know Alex Kane is quite right in in saying that that you know that is how he feels, and probably how most people feel. But and and of course, then it is in all of this, we're kind of on the defensive in a way. We're we're offering unionist loyalist arguments against you know, reunification and so on. But then what are the positive, progressive arguments that can be made for the union? That's that's what I'm not seeing very much of. And I think that's the space in which Lawyers and Museum has an opportunity to grow, develop, flex its intellectual muscles, and indeed come up with cultural, you know, I, I think plays as well as speeches are going to be part of this debate. And therefore more of, you know, Bino's listening, you know, there's your next project. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, I think I think what you're talking about there. Can you be in Ireland and be British? I mean, maybe the French Canadians have come to some terms with that, uh, where they see their allegiance in the the sort of British part of Canada and, and sort of how they even that's not perfectly sort of harmonious most of the time. Um, there there is a fair amount of division there and how how things go, but. You I mean, I'm looking at the South at the minute and there's a video online at the moment of a woman standing outside the GPO preaching about Muslims coming over and they're going to breed us out, breed the white people out so the Jews can take over. I mean, even within this utopia of the 26 counties, before we get to the 32, there's, there already is an unevenness there about people coming in and how they're seen by the indigenous population, if you wish. Where does loyalism sit with that? You mean, how long before somebody said the GPO shouting about loyalism coming down and watering down the Irish genes, that kind of thing? You mean, it, it's the, it's the uh, rise of the, the far right in the South. Uh, no, it is. And, and to, to be fair, it is frightening, particularly from the community where I'm from in Dublin. Uh, it is Ballymon and Coolock and so on. And there's been, you know, um, a lot of misinformation whatsapp groups talking about all these military age men are in this local hotel and and, and they're going to attack our women and so on and lots of most of it's just bollocks and simply being whipped up by people from outside the area it is thankfully a minority but you know it has popped up in rural parts of ireland as well and it's too convenient often for these far-right activists to blame the housing crisis, the health crisis on, on immigrants. I mean, the reality is the housing crisis is absolutely catastrophic down south and has been for years. The health service is on its knees. It hasn't been caused by uh, refugees uh, and so on. And even an interesting dynamic is that the uh, the white Ukrainian refugees, they were more welcomed in parts of the Republic. But even now, um, there is a reaction against uh, Ukrainian refugees. But I, I wouldn't want to exaggerate it. I don't think it's at the scale that you get like in France with far-right activism. But it is a minority. And to be fair, again, just speaking from my own community's perspective in North 
uh, Dublin, there was a counter demonstrations that, and, and people mobilized against these far right activists as well. But the reality is that this far right anti xenophobia, anti refugee sentiment, for my own research and, and climate, this is going to be a major issue because the reality is with the climate catastrophe that's now unfolding, there will be millions of people that will simply not be able to live where they are now and they're going to come northward. Uh, in terms of Europe, we've already seen, uh, you know, the anti-immigrant kind of um, EU policy um, by, by basically paying Turkey to keep these people in horrendous conditions. So I do think it's a much it's a much bigger conversation. But the reality is, yes, there is a far right presence down south. We don't we don't have a far right party. I I can't see any possibility of of them making a political breakthrough, but and there has been, as I say, uh, an, a kind of an organic and often trade union organised reaction against them. But it's, it doesn't mean to, mean to say that we're complacent, and it certainly does not mean to say that the South is non sectarian, that it's non racist, and and so on. That's one of the other things since living here that always annoy me about lazy commentary from the Republic that somehow sectarianism was all only located in the northeast part of this island as if sectarianism wasn't alive and well in parts of Dublin, Cork and Kerry Yeah, I, I know and to be honest, I mean, you've made points there about housing, I mean, that's where unionism should be aiming right this second, let's talk about the housing situation, let's see what the housing's like in the north compared to the south, that's the arguments we need to be making um, but John, we're not going to keep you any longer um, Gareth's got a young girl to get to bed and I have a <laughs> Rangers match to go and sit and chew my fingernails through um, but thank you for joining us and I have no doubt whatsoever that we'll get you back on again because some of the climate stuff and some of the stuff in the round mental health we would love yeah. to chat to you about again so um, if you're willing to come back on again some point in the next couple of months we'd love to get you back on when we'll discuss those issues no problem well this mouth from the south uh, will always be able to come on half mouth will talk is my motto no, it's it's good to chat, John. It's it's been too long, so like thanks for coming on and we look forward to having you on again. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity, lads. Cheers, John. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye.